This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, 7 months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good afternoon and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. They say things happen in threes. Well, this summer I've had calls from six acquaintances that have been diagnosed with diverticulitis. So I thought it would be a timely topic. Joining us today is Dr. Neil Stallman. Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Chairman of the Division of Gastroenterology at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in Oakland, California, and recently the Chair of the Board of Governors of the American College of Gastroenterology, our National GI Society, where he is now a trustee. He's an expert and known for his research in many areas of gastroenterology, including diverticular disease, and he frequently teaches at national meetings and training programs and is highly respected. We're so grateful that you could join us, Neil. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Mary. And that's very kind of you. I'm glad to be here. So diverticulosis, we throw these terms around uh, when, when we're talking to each other and we're familiar with exactly what that means. And I think some patients have a global understanding, but let's talk about what diverticulosis means. Absolutely. And I think it is helpful uh, to start with just some semantics because it gets really, really complicated, actually, when you have these words that all sound alike. So so a diverticulum is, is the singular pouch that happens in our colon to more than half of us as we get older. So, so a lot of us as we age get diverticulosis. That simply means the presence of having diverticula, the singular being diverticulum. And this gets stupid, but nonetheless, it's true. And then, of course, that's just a condition. Having the pockets doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you necessarily. Then we talk talk about diverticular disease, which means you got a problem because of these pockets. And then the other one that's confusing is we talk about diverticulitis, which is an inflammatory process, sometimes infectious, certainly inflammatory process associated with diverticulosis. So yeah, you got crazy words, diverticulosis, having them, diverticulitis when they get inflamed. Well, I think it's interesting because whenever I see patients, especially for the first visit, I love to bring out my diagram and I talk about the GI tract as I-95 or Route 1 if you're in California. Um, 
Oh no, Route 66. I don't know. I haven't been to California very much, but um, of course, the esophagus from from the mouth to the outside world is a muscular um, set of organs. The esophagus is like a sliding board that carries that bite of bread from your mouth into your stomach, where it gets churned up into little pieces. And two parts of intestine, small intestine, S for small, S for sponge. That's where we absorb our calories. And I tell my patients, I think of the large intestine, also known as the colon, as the trash compactor. It takes the leftovers and ships out the cargo. So that's a muscular tube that sort of bench presses to send out the cargo, if you're lucky, at a reasonable tempo. We don't want it to be too fast or too slow. And so what do you think causes these outpouches? I, I always tell my patients, think of a trumpet player. I have Dizzy Gillespie in my mind that used to blow the trumpet and his cheeks would go out. That's kind of what it looks like, right? These pouches that are in a muscular tube. That's a, that's a beautiful metaphor, actually, Mary, and I've not thought of it. I'm a little embarrassed to be a diverticular no. expert and never have used that, but I like it, actually. You're exactly right. So the, the whole bowel is this muscular tube, but in the colon particularly, that muscular tube um, has little little um, defects in it where blood vessels come through because the blood vessels live on the outside. They got to get to the inside to absorb water, which is largely what they do. And there's a little gap in the muscle where a blood vessel goes through. I loved your trash compactor um, metaphor because in fact, the colon mm -hmm. has a good amount of pressure. It squeezes and squeezes. And these little pockets are exactly that. They are kind of decompressive pockets that due to what we think is high pressures in the colon. We think there's a sort of local high pressures or local hypertension, and then you have this gap in a wall. If the wall was smooth and contiguous, you wouldn't have a problem because there's a little gap in the wall. If pressures on this side of the wall go larger, you're going to pouch out that little gap, basically. And, and in fact, they don't happen just randomly. They happen almost linearly along the anatomy where these blood vessels come in. So they're, they are pressure release valves. That's actually a totally perfect way to think about them. Although recognize that literally for 80% of people, they are incidental. They are asymptomatic. They don't know. If we didn't tell them about it, they wouldn't know. And now, of course, everyone's getting colonoscopies, as they should, for cancer prevention. And all these people are finding out they have these pockets they probably didn't even know they had until they got a colonoscopy. Um, so, so having them, no big deal. We educate you about it. Um, obviously, a small subset get a problem, and that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. Mm -hmm. And I like that you use the term diverticular disease. So you can just have these little ornaments or these little, you know, wallflowers. You have these little sacks that mind their own business. You go your own way, but they can go in three not so friendly directions, right? Significant complications might be if even one of those sacks, I always say, if you're a football player and you have an ingrown toenail, that one little tiny red spot on your big toe hurts so much, you don't want to play in the game. That one little sack, if it gets red and gets inflamed, because just having the sacks, diverticulosis, but if one gets inflamed, itis is the suffix meaning inflammation, tonsillitis, sinusitis, but diverticulitis, that one little sack, if it pops open and the fecal contents enter the cave, your, your peritoneum or all your organs live in your belly, you can be seriously, seriously ill or even lose your life, yes? So diverticulitis, we want you to jump on it. You can also have bleeding, as you say, that outpatching is near an area where the blood vessel comes from the outside in, gets stretched. And we'll talk about that at the end a little bit. But our focus today is on diverticulitis. So let's review what that is too, because I know, as you say, it's in a relatively small percentage of people that have diverticulosis, yes? 
Yeah, it's probably less than 10%. We used to say 20. I wrote a paper in 1999 where I think I quoted 20%. I wrote another big paper two years ago where I dropped that to 10%. I'll probably drop it to 5%. It's probably, as, as the denominator gets bigger, the, the relative percentage goes down. As we realize more and more and more people have diverticulosis, the relative risk of diverticulitis is going down. It's probably 5 or 10% of people in their lifetime. So again, most people won't do that. Uh, Thank goodness, Yes. And you, you're correct. I, I love your conception as the the toenail thing too. I've had I've had one ingrown toenail in my life, oh, it's and it's nasty. miserable. Um, <laughs> it's a good metaphor. Yeah. Well, this is a good metaphor. We think diverticulitis basically is a perforation, as you said, a little little pop or a little hole. Now, be I have to be mindful to be precise about that because I think when we think about a perforation, we think of a free or an open, per- like a balloon bursts and everything comes out of it. That's actually not what happens in the large, large, large majority of people. It's a it's in fact a micro perforation or a contained perforation. It gets walled off. The colon has a lot of fat and tissue around it, and it doesn't just pop and and you get fulminant peritonitis. That's actually very very rare. Um, it's sort of a contained mm-hmm. perforation, and it and it is absolutely happens as you mentioned from obstruction of one pocket. That's what happens. One pocket gets blocked up by poop by literally by a ball of poop, which has a good name, fecalith. That's, That's a, a fun excellent word. word fecalith ball mm-hmm. of stool that, yeah, it is, right? That blocks up one little pocket that, and you know, our body wants to drain, right? Everything should come, should, should flow and drain. When you block up this one pocket, things get stuck behind it. You get this little local perforation and you get sick. That's basically the, the path, the pathology there. But I think what's important to drive home to our listeners is, um, it's really vitally important that you go immediately, call your doctor immediately. See, don't just ask for antibiotics. We want to put our hands on your belly. COVID's pretty much over. The offices are open. It's safe to come in. We wear masks and all those good things. We want to put our hands on your belly because we don't want to give you antibiotics over the phone. We're going to talk about treatment later, but there are consequences, albeit probably, as you say, maybe less often than 25% of cases that if that area gets swollen, the patient could have an obstruction or they can form an ash, uh, an abscess. Um, I think of, so it's, it's less like a pinata and more like UPS packaging that, 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 <laughs> that little ceramic piece that's packed inside the, the popcorn is protected and it's not going to, uh, you know, fall apart. So obstruction, abscess, or a bigger perforation in a very small number, or even fistula. Let's talk about what a fistula is. Yeah, fistula simply means sort of one tube connects to another tube in essence. So if, and we've already said that this, in, this diverticulitis is a, is a hole in one of the tubes, that tube being your colon, right? So if that hole, that pus, it's literally pus, comes out and connects or sticks to another tube, which could be a loop of small intestine that's nearby. It could be another part of the colon that's nearby. The colon is pretty redundant. It could be a vagina in a woman. It could be a bladder. Um, if it hits another organ, it can make a connection. They can kind of adhese to each other. And then if, if the other organ opens too, you now have a, a connection from one hollow organ, large, essentially to another hollow organ. So it can be colon into bowel, mm-hmm. colon into vagina, colon into bladder, colon to skin rarely. That's uncommon. It's far away. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's really what a fistula is. They don't happen a mm-hmm. ton in diverticulitis, fortu- fortunately. Um, fortunately. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. good news because they're challenging. They generally require surgery. So that's a good thing that that doesn't, doesn't happen all that often. It's kind of like a burning bridge that connects the hot spot and melts into the melted uh, grilled cheese that melts into the, the other neighbor. 
Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Neil Stallman from Oakland, California. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Hi, I'm Dr. Denny Caris, Chief Science Officer at Recovery Centers of America, and I'm here as your addiction expert. I get asked a lot, how do people overcome addictions? Is there all different kind of ways? Can some people just quit? Why do some people need a bunch of treatment? The reality is there is a small number of people who use addictively that can quit on their own. In a study where we asked... Did you used to have a problem with drugs or alcohol but no longer do? And found out that 20% of people that say they used to have a problem were able to quit on their own. They didn't need any treatment or anything else. And we see that too with the Vietnam vets. There's a whole cadre of Vietnam vets that used opium and black tar heroin in Vietnam in an addictive way that just kind of quit on the way home and it never was a problem for them again. Importantly, there's a whole other cohort of Vietnam vets for whom opioids is still a problem today. So you don't know if you're in that 20% or not. There's a bunch of people who quit with the help of their church or the help with 12-step groups or other support groups. And then a vast majority of people need some kind of treatment, whether that's outpatient treatment or residential care. And some people need detox to safely get the drugs out of their body. The only thing to know about detox, though, is that you don't want detox alone. That's usually five to seven days and when people do that they get all the drugs out of their body they're at very high risk of relapse when they go back out. They don't have tolerance they use the same amount of drugs and they tend to overdose. It's a very dangerous thing. So some people can do it on their own but it's a very small percent and you never know if you're going to fall into that group, right? And then some people need modest treatments some people need very long term treatment. Whatever it is you need though it's important to know that there is help out there. The best predictor that somebody will get into recovery from drugs and alcohol is treatment. Interesting though, the best predictor that someone will stay in recovery long term and maintain recovery is participation in support groups like AA, NA, and other recovery support groups. If you or a loved one has a problem with alcohol or drugs, call 1-888-RECOVERY today or go to recoverycentersofamerica.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. That number again is 1-888-RECOVERY. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction. You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like, how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? 
And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to health care. Learn how we are working to make health care more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. And we're back on your radio doctor talking about diverticulitis. Who would want that? Dr. Neil Stallman is here and we're talking about causes yeah, thanks. Thanks, Marianne. So to be precise and, and maybe too confusing, but I'll try to real, be real simple. We're talking about what causes you to get the pockets. That's one question, right? Why do you get this state of diverticulosis? And then there's kind of a related question, which is what causes, and, and remember, half of us have that, right? Half, look left, look right. Half the people you know above the age of 50 or 60 have diverticulosis. What then leads this kind of small subset of people to get diverticulitis within that? And we know for sure that that diet is a big, big, big part of this. If you simply look at a map of the world, parts of the world where we where they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and fiber and don't eat a lot of red meat and fat have a, a much lower risk of diverticulosis, frankly, than our country, for example, unfortunately, where we eat way too much red, red meat and fat and way too little fiber, and we have a higher risk of diverticulosis. So it's almost an inverse correlation. Communities, populations, countries that eat a lot of fiber don't get diverticulosis nearly as much as the West, if you will, us, where we get a lot of it. So that's sort of the first step, and that's sort of simplistic, but, but almost certainly true. There is also, by the way, a genetic component. It does run in families. We never used to think that, but there's now very good data from a couple of big studies looking at twins and other family members that suggests that there is a propensity that this can run in families. And if your siblings or your parents had it, you're at slightly higher risk of it. So those are kind of the things that lead us to get these pockets, probably a, a lifetime of low fiber. And by the way, it is a lifetime or, it, or it's decades. This is not, I didn't eat good for a month and I got diverticulosis. This is, I didn't eat good for decades right. and I got diverticulosis. Um, well, you know, after I was a GI fellow, I was fortunate enough to spend a, a third year. I was at Sloan Kettering. And of course, nutrition is so important and uh, treatment of cancer, patients with cancer. But uh, we studied fad diets and we studied all kinds of uh, issues related to nutrition. That's a really hard plan because if you have two groups of people and we say to one group, eat whatever you like, but write it all down. Um, Hawthorne effect, we call it, right? But when, when you know you're being watched, you are going to behave differently. You're not going to eat that third candy bar because you know you have to write it in your diary. So they're not really eating spontaneously versus the group who's given three meals a day. And so, so diet. Uh, studies are very difficult. However, you talked the other day in our conversation about a really cool study that compared the people in Britain who have tea sandwiches and tea versus people from Uganda who eat the you know the carrots raw and, and you know all their high fiber, and that's where we get some of that information. But what's really interesting is two things. I think um, when we adhere to the um, uh, low red meat, high fiber, physical activity you mentioned is important. Um, keep your weight down. Don't smoke. Do not smoke for so many reasons. But um, that adhering to good lifestyle choices decreases the risk of diverticulitis, but the role of fiber and osis isn't so clear. 
Am I right about that? That's what I read a paper. Right, on. exactly that, Mary. And so, yeah, it, you're absolutely. It, it is hard to study the role in osis. In fact, there was another just flawed study that sort of looked at people after colonoscopies who had diverticulosis and asked them about their fiber, and they were surprisingly taking a ton of fiber. But when you look closely, it's in part because they knew they had diverticulosis. Yep. So that was post facto. Now they're to your point about the Hawthorne effect. Now they know they have this illness, so their current dietary fiber intake is actually quite high. Mm-hmm. But but, but it's really a lifetime. You're, you're paying the price, unfortunately, for, for your lifetime to get these pockets. But then you hit on the key thing. Okay, I've now I'm in the 10% that got diverticulitis. Dr. Stolman, is there anything I can do? To, that was miserable. I hated it. I spent a couple of nights in the hospital. It messed up my kid's bar mitzvah, whatever. Is there a way to avoid doing this again? And I'll tell you, 10 years ago, I would probably say, cross your fingers, that that was kind of the only answer we had. We hope you don't do it, but but we couldn't sort of fix that. And now we have data that's, I think, very good quality data that we can, by all the things you mentioned, eat less red meat, eat more dietary fiber, exercise more, lose some of your trunkal obesity, don't smoke, of course. Each of those factors independently lowers your risk of recurrent diverticulitis. So when your patient has one, and they want to they want to not do this again you can i think very actively say hey do these things and while that won't eliminate it i wish it took it you to zero it didn't but but that maybe i think half's a good estimate that can reduce your risk of doing this again substantially mm-hmm. so you don't have to be so nihilistic you got this and it's a done deal i think you can actually prevent subsequent attacks. Well, I think your other really important uh, take-home message for listeners is there is no association between the risk of diverticulitis and eating nuts, seeds, eat the tomatoes and cucumbers, corn, popcorn. I remember I was in medical school and um, Saturday Night Live first started and we all laughed and because we had studied, we learned what diverticulitis meant and the coneheads took a bus trip to New York. And when they got off the bus, um, they saw a vendor selling hot dogs and they said, we can't eat hot dogs. We'll get diverticulitis. Well, hot dogs don't give you diverticulitis either, but don't worry. Go nuts. Eat the, because ironically, that's the fiber we want you to eat. So go for it. Yes. Exactly that. And I, I want to repeat that only because I think it's a really important thing. I'm I'm pretty convinced that my grandma Minnie in Boca Raton, Florida started that rumor 30, 40 years ago. And every doctor in America bought into that rumor. And we have historically told these people with the pockets exactly that. You can't have strawberries. You can't have poppy seed bagels on this completely misguided belief that these little tiny seeds are going to somehow clog up that pocket. Now, I've told you it is a clogged pocket, but that's true. But there's no way in hell these little tiny seeds in in strawberries and cucumbers on a poppy seed bagel or in a sesame seed bagel anywhere are clogging up that pocket. Um, we told people to avoid that. We finally got some good data about 10 years ago. And not only did the people who avoided those things not do better, they actually did worse to the point you were making, Marianne. They avoided good stuff. And that's just not healthy. And if anything, avoiding those things was worse for you. So mm-hmm. as you said, go nuts. We are now completely, there is no dietary prohibition for people who have diverticulosis to avoid X, Y, or Z, unless they feel miserable. If you, every time you eat popcorn, you feel miserable. Fine, don't eat popcorn. But but from a medical perspective, you don't have to tell someone with diverticulosis or or diverticulitis for that matter that they need to avoid 
any of those mm-hmm. things. So sorry, Grandma Minnie, she's Aww. no longer with us, but but you were wrong and your grandson is 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 writing this wrong. And I will say this, in our guideline, in the, in the, the AGA guidelines that we wrote uh, a few years ago on this, it's a a big giant black box with bold letters saying, stop telling people not to do yeah. this because we thought it was so important that we gave, rather than just ignore it, we gave an affirmative recommendation to say, this is nonsense, stop this. Yeah. So so that's how important we think it was. I think for two reasons, you don't want people to eliminate fiber, but secondly, you don't want to make people feel guilty. Oh, darn, why did I eat the salad with the cucumbers in it? I did it to myself. No, 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 not your fault. So symptoms. Obviously, the most common symptom is abdominal pain. And we as GI doctors, I always say I could enter the ER and have a patient, uh, patients in 10 different rooms, and I can name that tune in three notes. We, you can walk into a room and pretty quickly tell if it's something inflammatory like a hot gallbladder, a hot appendix, diverticulitis versus obstruction or an ovarian cyst or a virus. And um, it's, it's experience. But where do we most commonly see the pain and why? Yeah, right. So the so the easy patient's easy, and I'd say three quarters are are pretty straightforward. They sort of we sometimes say they read the book, right? They came in and they kind of gave you a textbook example. Most patients in this country, it differs internationally, but most patients in this country have their pockets on the in what we call their sigmoid colon. It's because it's S shaped for the Greek letter sigma, and it's in our left lower side. That's where most of us get this, not all, but most. And when it gets inflamed it hurts in the left lower side. And most people come in kind of clutching that area. Now, as you mentioned, there are exceptions to that rule. Asian patients more typically have right-sided problems. That sigmoid colon is absolutely a floppy thing and it can sort of flop left or flop right. So there are plenty of other presentations, but when the, you know, the, the person walks in the door with known diverticulosis with a couple of days of worsening left lower quadrant pain, maybe a low-grade fever, a little nausea and vomit, um, that's diverticulitis most commonly. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's rare, but if they have this burning connection, this burning bridge to the bladder, they might see little flecks of stool when they pass their urine. Or if a woman has a connection from the itis to her vaginal canal, she might pass uh, pieces of feces from her vaginal area. But really, um, only 1% to 2% have the big-time perforation that... Um, uh, is really frightening. Low-grade fever, sometimes, sometimes not. So we're going to talk when we come back from the break about how we make the diagnosis. But in this last minute, let's talk about where you start with that. Yeah, I think, I think, and it's not even that complicated. Diagnosis is fairly straightforward here. I mean, obviously it's physical exam. It's where it's put, it's walking in the room, putting your hand on, on a belly. That's what we do. And, and hopefully we're good at that. Um, but CAT scanning has now sort of changed the game. I mean, the CT scanner is really option A, B, C, and D for this. It is highly accurate. It, it tells you, uh, it's sensitive, it's specific, it tells you where it is, it tells you if there's an abscess, as you mentioned, um, it tells you if there's an obstruction. So all of these things we talked about largely get defined on a CT. And not to say everyone with diverticulitis needs a CT, I'm being very conscious not to say that, but if there's any doubt, if they're sick, if we're worried, you you go to the ER, you get seen, and you get a CAT scan pretty much within an hour in the ER, and that's sort of standard today. Mm-hmm. And we do blood tests, but maybe 45% of the people, almost half, have a normal white cell count. We look at white cells, right, when they're elevated and suggest uh, an infection. And um, so that's not always a, a, 
an indication for us. And if a patient has diarrhea that's kind of new, um, we also check their stool for the garden variety bacteria like Clostridium difficile, Salmonella, Shigella, E. coli. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back to talk more about diverticulitis. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Philadelphia Group, presenting you with the nutrition tip of the week. So when you think of summertime, it usually makes your stomach growl. There are all these barbecues that include grilled meats, sweet corn, juicy watermelon. You stroll down the, the boardwalk and there's the smells of the caramel popcorn, pizza, the waves crashing, and each night ending in, in a dripping ice cream cone. Summer is all about carefree time spent with family and friends, but most of these social settings include very indulgent foods. The downside may be some unexpected weight gain. According to a recent study by the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, children are more likely to actually gain weight during the summer months than even the winter months. So the advice I offer to clients, of course, and patients is to avoid crash diets, especially the beach body goals, and embrace mindful eating to prevent loosening the belt. And again, balance and moderation are key. So here are a few of my tips that we can talk about eating mindfully and healthfully from the boardwalk, a place that my family spends on many of the weekends in the summer to the beach, and of course, all those cookouts. So let's first talk about the boardwalk. Talk about all the temptations. Every outlet down the boardwalk has different food samplers offering you pieces of fudge, water ice, and gelato, popcorn, and pastries. You know, recently I decided to taste all these treats with my family. To my surprise, it actually helped satisfy my cravings. So how did this actually satisfy my cravings? I made sure I tried all these foods after I ate a balanced meal. This way, I wouldn't go to the boardwalk starving. Another tip is maybe eat a little bit less at dinner to plan for those treats. If you want the gelato or the ice cream, order a small or split one with a friend. You will be surprised that the small size is actually much bigger than you really thought. Some other healthy choices are maybe some adding veggies to your pizza like spinach instead of pepperoni or opting for grilled or baked fish instead of fried and really slow down and savor the flavors of your food. So most importantly, don't forget to walk the boardwalk. I bet you can get 10,000 steps in there real quick. This is Emily Rubin presenting you with your nutrition tip of the week. For more information, you can go to yourradiodoctor.com. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. 
Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Neil Stallman. It's such a treat to have you and talk about diverticulitis. We were saying that we it's routine to get a CAT scan. Maybe not always, but a CAT scan is a good go-to. Are there ever times when you repeat the CAT scan down the road? Yeah, if someone gets better, you get a CAT scan, you go to the ER, they say you have diverticulitis, we'll send you home or admit you either way. And, and if you do well, you're done imaging wise from that perspective. You don't need another CAT scan. We don't prove on a CAT scan you got better. But if you're not getting better, then for sure, we're going to repeat that CAT scan looking largely for an abscess or, or a perforation or a bigger perforation, mm-hmm. basically. That's the short term, right? So that's gotcha. that's while someone's sick. Uh, then there's this other thing, though, which is a really important thing that I'm, I'll segue into because it's... You know, we look at a CAT scan and it looks like it's inflamed, but a lot of things and, and common things are common. Diverticulitis is most commonly causing that, especially in a patient who you know has diverticulosis, but very rarely a perforated colon cancer can mimic that on a CAT scan. So we're really paranoid about saying, if you have a CAT scan that we think is diverticulitis and you have not had a colonoscopy in the recent past, what is the recent past? Probably a year or so. Um... We then say, you know what, in a month or two, once you're better, not now, not while you're sick for sure, but in six, eight, 10 weeks, if you've not had a colonoscopy, we want to do that. In fact, I happen to do one of those today for exactly that purpose. And it was fine. He had pockets and nothing else as most do. In fact, once in my career has that been a cancer that I found. So it's rare that we find a cancer. I don't want you all thinking that you're going to, that this really was masquerading cancer. Literally once in my career so far is that have I been surprised by the cancer? But but everybody who gets, quote, presumptive diverticulitis diagnosis who hasn't had a colonoscopy in the last year or two buys a colonoscopy a couple of months down the road. Mm-hmm. Sure, because if you think about it, if it's a little fecalith or a little tiny piece of hard stool that could get stuck in the pocket, if there's a growth nearby, it makes it easier for that little nasty guy to get lodged treatment. That is the exactly. big issue. And since last year, we've changed our our game day plan. Uh, it used to be, you'd be seen in the emergency room, we give you two antibiotics. And, and if that still is the case, we remind people one of them is flagell. We want to try to take care of all the different bacteria that might be causing this itis. One of them being flagell. If you drink alcohol while you're on flagell, I always triple remind my patients, you could have an antabuse uh, reaction, like antabuse-like reaction. So good thing to say. But Let's talk about the treatment now, Neil. Where are we? 
in 2022. Yeah. So, so again, you show up in the ER, you got pain. We, we may or may not do a CAT scan. We make your diagnosis. First decision we're going to make is do we keep you in the hospital or send you home? You don't have to stay in the hospital unless you're crazy sick or super vulnerable. You know, my 94 year old grandma who has no one else at home and can't move around, she might stay in for a couple of days just to make sure she perks up. But the ambulatory, relatively healthy person can frankly go home. And in, in the old days, to your point, in, a few years ago, you'd go home with, a, with two prescriptions for two antibiotics. That was the plan. I'll tell you the Europeans are far ahead of us in, in thinking about this differently. And starting 10 years ago, the Europeans started doing studies looking at, can we send some of those people home without antibiotics? Why is everybody getting antibiotics? We know we're overusing antibiotics. We know we're promoting resistant organisms. Antibiotics have their own side effects. You and I are going to talk about C. difficile one day, which is a consequence of overuse of antibiotics. So the Europeans, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Italians came along and said, let's do a fabulous study and actually hold antibiotics on people. Fast forward a decade, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of patients in those studies, and the people without antibiotics do just fine. It was staggeringly surprising to us. We assumed you had to have antibiotics for this. And in the guidelines that I just mentioned to you that we released, we crunched the data. And the data says that for patients with mild disease who are not immunosuppressed, not elderly, not toxic, you can take a few days and see how you do off antibiotics. And that was a game changer, as you, as you said. That also got a big black box. In, the, in, the, in fact, that was the first black box in the guidelines that says, use antibiotics selectively, not routinely. That's not to say that many people don't get them. They still do. But it's no longer everyone. And that is a sea change. Mm -hmm. And if a patient is on antibiotics because you do a CAT scan and it looks like there might be uh, extra swelling or, or you're worried about other comorbidities they have like diabetes. Yeah, they're or, sick, right. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. really sick. You're going to watch them. But if their symptoms persist after three days on antibiotics, um, you might uh, bring them back. You're going to look for an abscess. Or if they have an abscess on CAT scan, we're going to first line antibiotics. At what point would you drain an abscess? Yeah, there's it's a it's a hard it's there's not a, a sharp line it's it's a soft line it depends on the size the bigger they are also depends in part where they're located and whether we can easily get in and drain them if they're sort of behind the colon it's much harder if they're in the front of the colon it's much easier to kind of stick in when we do these across the skin now we don't do them surgically anymore we do them quote percutaneously so we stick a little catheter across the mm -hmm. skin to suck out the pus it's a it's it's an abscess a collection exactly. of pus basically and that's what I wanted people to hear that. So many of these these um, treatment plans are less invasive, less frightening, and and safer. And I I can think back to training days. Our CAT scan capability was to a centimeter, a lesion smaller than a centimeter. CAT scans couldn't pick them up. Now CAT scans pick up salt and pepper from your dinner yesterday. So they're much more sensitive, <laughs> meaning able to find little teeny weeny uh, abnormalities. And uh, in this case, as you said, very specific. We, you know, we look at this and we say, "Yep, it's diverticulitis. It's not an ovarian cyst or something." Um, then I guess the other question is, at what point do you operate? Because I was teased on the the rule that if you had two episodes of diverticulitis within a year, 
or if you had a total of three episodes of diverticulitis, we're going to say, let's remove that part of the garden hose so it can't act up on you again, because repeated episodes of diverticulitis in a small number of cases, but the thinking was, we don't want it to scar down like a third degree burn on your skin, and it narrows into a... Um, uh, a narrow lumen or a smaller highway because yeah, stricture stenosis, yes. right? Yeah. You get a mm-hmm. little narrowing, you get a scar, mm-hmm. basically you get a scar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- I, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm the one who teased you. I wrote the guidelines in 1999 that said after two attacks, talk about surgery, not necessarily have surgery, but at least start a conversation about surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, the guidelines we wrote more recently actually overtly said, no, not after two, after three, maybe four, maybe five. It's certainly later. We are operating later than we used to by far. Um, Because it turns out people don't do as as badly as we thought. So what what I helped misteach you, I will take some of the blame for that, Mm -hmm. um, is is no longer the the, the prevailing operating characteristic. (laughs) Um, Now we are clearly, our guidelines, the surgery guidelines from, from the Society of Colon Surgeons all say later, basically. Good. Because surgery is not without its risks. Uh, but what, one thing I have always been steadfast about, and maybe it's a little overkill, but that's why I tell my patients I'm 49% your doctor, 51% your mother. I'm going to worry for you until I see you again and you're better. I do um, send my patients home with brand new uh, diagnosis with stool softeners. It has to make things easier. You know, even if you're going easily, I want to just treat that area with kid gloves and not make it do any extra work. And the second thing is, I still- It's logical, right? You're lowering pressure. Right. right? You're lowering pressure. You're moving things along, so pressure goes down. Exactly. The waste will pass through in a more passive way, less workload, keep everybody quiet in there. And the other thing is, I ask people to stay on clear liquids, at least so your pain starts to subside. Do you still do that, or do you say, eat what you like? Because if, if it's swollen, think about it. The lumen is, I don't know- 10 millimeters wide and it shrinks to three, that lettuce and, you know, um, cucumber isn't going to fit through so easily. Do you send people home on clear liquids still? Correct. I usually give them sort of a day of clear liquids, then we'll kind of rapidly go to full liquids, sort of cloudy liquids or milkshakes and stuff. I try to avoid. Uh, so we talk about fiber, fiber, fiber. We love fiber, but not at that week. That week you go exactly. is not a good week for a lot of fiber, right? That week is, in general, yeah. it's, it's super important for our colon. It's really mana. It's the vitamin of our colon is fiber, but uh, not that week. So that week is kind of a low fiber, low residue a short-term diet because you want to be gentle to your colon. It's got to heal and it'll take a few weeks to do that. We definitely do not want to poke the bear. So on occasion, you keep someone in the hospital, maybe they're immunosuppressed or they have a temp over a certain point um, and you want to be extra careful. But again, most of the time people go home and you're a phone call away. Let's talk about very briefly diverticular bleeding. As you said, that blood vessel is stretched and, um, People will see fresh red blood. Um, well, or if it's from higher up, it might be exactly. maroonish, but it, they'll see a flood, like a massive blood. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so it's a real bleed. Diverticular bleeding is is very different from, like, say, hemorrhoidal bleeding or an anal fissure or something. It is an artery, exactly as you mentioned. It is an artery called the vasorectal, but it's an artery. And arteries, as you know, are under pressure, and they bleed. And that's what ruptures. When, when a diverticular bleed occurs, it's the rupture of an artery. So it's significant bleeding. Patient, it's not subtle. Patients say, how will I know? And I basically say, you'll know. 
snow. Um, you're going to pass a lot of red to maroon blood. You're not, it's not blood you see wiping with on the toilet paper. That's your hemorrhoid or something. This is your fill in the bowl with blood, and you got to come in for that. It is painless, by the way. So diverticulitis, which hurts, and diverticular bleeding are different problems and don't occur, actually. They occur, you get one or the other, but you don't get both simultaneously. So it's not going to hurt. It's going to be painless passage of a whole bucket of blood. You got to come to the ER for that. There's no outpatient management of, of that. The good news is it's not fatal. It's scary. It's really dramatic to see all this blood. And rightly in our brains, we go, oh my goodness, I'm bleeding to death. I will tell you that's extraordinarily rare. Uh, bleeding stops. At some point, bleeding stops. Sure. Yeah. And then probably in, would you say about 75% of the time, the bleeding just stops. The fire hydrant opens up yeah, and maybe even more. Stops, maybe even more. Exactly. Uh, like that. Forrest Gump. Why? Why aren't you running? I stopped. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, one and, uh, really key point I want to just if, make about that, if I can. Sorry to interrupt, Marion. I just want to make the really important point sure, that sure. No. about nonsteroidals and bleeding. Right. So we've we all know that when I say nonsteroidals, we mean Advil, Motrin, Aleve, ibuprofen, uh, you know, Naproxen, all of these nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories, which we've taught the world cause stomach upset. Right. They cause ulcers. They cause gastritis. The whole world understands that they're bad for your stomach. I want to make a very aggressive point. They're bad for your colon too. The same problem that can cause them to cause stomach bleeding is the number one risk factor for diverticular bleeding as well is non-steroidal use. Good for people to hear. So if they have one bleed, they might want to back off and use Tylenol or some other pain reliever. Uh, exactly. So they don't, because there is a risk of re-bleeding. Um, and again, if it's an older person with other medical conditions, they can't afford to go through a drop in their hemoglobin count from, you know, by three or four points. That could be enough to really, really make them sick. And we localize the bleeding. Sometimes with the scope, we can take a peek. And if we see clear clear colon above where the bleeding starts, we say, oh, there it is at, you know, 32nd Street. Um, uh, but other times we need to scan or do what's called an arteriogram and angiogram. But for the most part, it stops and they rarely need surgery. Exactly. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap-up with Dr. Neil Stallman. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. 
When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. And in our last segment on your radio, Doctor, Dr. Neil Stallman is going to give us a wrap-up of the most important points about diverticulitis. And we call this segment your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech. Neil, what would you like to share? Thanks, Marianne. I think I think there's some take-homes here for sure that are also sort of different than we like to have thought about. One important one for sure is the nuts and seeds thing, right? Ignore my grandma, Minnie. You, if you have diverticulosis or diverticulitis, you or your family members do not need to avoid seeds and nuts and popcorn and the like. That's a very important one. Fiber ties into that, right? Fiber is what our colon wants. It really is. Think of it as the vitamin for our colon. Um, a high-fiber diet is without a doubt healthier for our colons than a, than a low fiber diet. Uh, the other thing that, that we mentioned is that this used to be sort of an automatic antibiotic situation. You got diverticulitis, you got antibiotics. And I think now we're realizing that uh, some sick old people who have diverticulitis certainly still do get antibiotics. But if you're younger and healthier and robust, it's worth a try because antibiotics have downsides for sure, right? They have their own problems. You can trade problem X for problem Y by giving someone extra antibiotics. Um, what I'll tell you what I do is I send them home with a prescription and I say, hold off and don't fill it. See how you do tonight and see how you do Good tomorrow. Idea. But here's the piece of paper. Exactly. So there's a safety net for you if you need it. Uh, we mentioned if, if you've had diverticulitis, you buy yourself a colonoscopy at some point when you're better. Uh, and then the last thing I want to repeat, because it's really important, is that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs, uh, again, ibuprofen being the dominant dominant agent in that class with lots of different brand names, they are just lousy for our colon and they cause diverticulitis. They are a risk factor for diverticulitis and they're a risk mm. factor for diverticular bleeding, both. And if someone has diverticular disease, right, this all-encompassing term for, if you have diverticulosis and, you don't, and nothing's wrong with you, fine, take your NSAIDs. But if you have disease, i.e. complications like diverticulitis or bleeding, um, you have to be, you have to really minimize your non-steroidals. Is there a website that listeners could visit to learn more about diverticulitis and diverticular disease? Oh, sure. Sure thing. So you can certainly go to our society website. You mentioned the ACG, which is gi.org. Um, that's our website. It's literally gi.org. And we have a lot of patient information there. Uh, the, there's another society called the AGA. They have a site called gastro.org. And that also has good patient educational materials. I have a, a personal sort of academic website, which is neilstolman.com, www.neilstolman.com. Uh, no dashes or hyphens or periods. And that's where I archive sort of my lectures and some of my papers and things like that. So people will be able to find some of my stuff on that website if, if they wish to. Beautiful. And we're going to start posting more information from our guests on uh, uradiodoctor.net as well. So this is great information, Neil. Thank you so much. And I will say, as you mentioned, there's a national trend 
uh, doctors wanted to use antibiotics less often, not so much a knee-jerk reflex because in treating the bad bacteria, it can also disrupt the good bacteria in your bowel called the microbiome. And yay, lucky us, Dr. Neil Stallman is going to be our guest to talk about the microbiome and pluses and minuses and things you should know that are just good common sense. And with all your experience with all of these GI conditions, it was a real treat to have you. And I can't wait to interview you again. And I thank you. Thank you, Mary. I'm looking forward to it. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Arts Philadelphia. The tragedy of Julius Caesar is a history play by Shakespeare from 1599. Brutus was a beloved friend of Caesar, but joined a conspiracy that assassinated Caesar to prevent him from becoming a tyrant. Several senators stabbed Caesar, and Brutus was the last, at which time Caesar uttered the famous line, Et tu, Brutus? You too, Brutus? Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony, claimed not the knife wounds, but the betrayal of his friend Brutus that was the unkindest cut of all. Well, we had a pathology teacher in medical school who created a different version and said aging is the unkindest cut of all. When you think about it, there are a lot of conditions we can work with. You can take pills for your high blood pressure. You can have surgery for a broken hip. But how can we stop progression of dementia? Recently, we heard from a world-renowned professor from the Mayo Clinic. We're making progress with finding warning signs before dementia begins and hope it will lead to effective therapy. Now, meet Dr. Susan Schiffrey, an art historian, curator, and educator. After earning a PhD at Bryn Mawr College, she has worked at several large and small museums along the East Coast. While she was the educator at the Berman Museum of Art at Ursinus College, she was approached by a visitor one day a social worker from a nearby retirement center who asked if there were any programs that would appeal to residents from both independent living and those in memory care dealing with dementia. It touched Susan's heart because she and her brother watched their own dear mother slowly fade over the long course of 20 years. Susan found funding and trained for a special program that would engage this audience that was not being served. In these initial workshops, she was profoundly moved as she watched visitors, many in later stages of dementia, come to life in the museum as they studied the art, talked about it with each other, their care partners, with Susan, and with college students who worked there. Susan saw a transformation in people who, in some cases, had rarely spoken about or shared their lives with others. Art was their vehicle for expression, interaction, creativity, and mutual respect and for laughter, plenty of laughter. So inspired by the response, Susan founded her own nonprofit called Arts Philadelphia in 2013. It involved a lot of perseverance and even risk to her own financial standing. The range of programs equally serves those with a pre-diagnosis all the way to those in hospice. Some are geared to the patients, some to care partners, and some to both. Offered in nursing homes, long-term continuing care centers, daycare centers, and in small groups with six to eight people and two aides, each person holds a photo and is asked, what do you see? Susan states, our job is to follow. It can take up to an hour to discuss one or two works of art. There are also sessions that involve making art 
for those who struggle to communicate verbally but have the opportunity to express themselves visually. I asked Susan if a picture ever triggers a sad or negative memory. Memories are not always happy, but the patient has the choice to remain in discussion, which is therapeutic because in the world of dementia, other choices are peeled away. These conversation-based exchanges provide a community for patients and bring joy to care partners as well. The focus of the work is not on the illness or disability, but a new appreciation of the person they thought they lost. The person with dementia has changed, but is still the person they love and can enjoy, tapping other areas of the brain that are still there to be appreciated. By 2016, Susan expanded the program to mentor medical students, nursing, pharmacy, and occupational therapy students, giving them a better understanding for the future and that inside the illness, there is still a patient. Susan's reward? Meeting extraordinary people who model grace and dignity under the most extreme circumstances. She explains, we learn from the people we serve, but they give more to me than I give to them. We salute you, Dr. Susan Schifrin, founder and executive director of Arts Philadelphia, your real champion. Learn more by visiting artsphilly.org. Volunteer, donate, arts, that's A-R-T-Z, artsphilly.org. Thank you for listening every Saturday at 5 o'clock here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen again wherever you find your podcasts or on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. And search for Your Radio Doctor. We thank our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America, Rothman Orthopedic Institute, and Genentech. Send us a story of a champion to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Great shows coming up, including one on gastric bypass surgery, the microbiome, and the story of Emily Whitehead, the first child to receive experimental therapy for leukemia, who has just celebrated 10 years of survival. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement.